Hello and welcome to April's edition of Rich Pickings. I'm Richard Edgar and this month we swap city traffic and pigeons for waves and seagulls. They're soaring over my head as I join you from my home by the seaside on the south coast of England. You'll all know why I'm here and not in London. Since we last met, we've seen countries locked down across the world. Markets have convulsed as it dawns just how significant the coronavirus pandemic is. A recession, perhaps even a depression, looms. And throughout it all, stories of human tragedy. This month, amid the first signs of an easing of those lockdown measures, we set out how the economy might respond and, of course, what that means for investors. Listen on to find out more. Joining me via video conference are global economist Anna Stupnitska and global equities portfolio manager Jeremy Podger. Thank you both for joining me. Hi, Thank Richard. You. Now, before we start, can you both tell me how you've been coping with your own personal lockdowns? Uh, tell me one pleasant surprise, perhaps, of being stuck at home. Jeremy. I'm just amazed that uh, we're kind of stepping back from our busy London life. There are no planes in the sky, very few cars on the road, and suddenly spring is springing. And I cannot believe the, uh, the number of birds in the garden, insects, the wildlife's amazing. So Jeremy's communing with nature. That's good to hear. Anna, how about you? What, what's good about this lockdown for you? Uh, well, actually, I agree with Jeremy. But uh, for me also, I've been really surprised how much uh, more um, I can fit in a day if I don't commute. So I can exercise, I can uh, teach my kids. I can do different things and I can do a lot of work. I've been quite productive. I'm glad you got that last bit in. I'm sure your boss is delighted to hear it. Um, anyway, these are silver linings, of course, to some rather black clouds. Um, Jeremy, you've managed money through quite a few of these crises. Um, how does this one compare? Well, I mean, every, every major crisis is different. Um, there are certainly similarities in all of them. So I think every crisis has its panic phase. And that's where the fast money and the leverage money just gets out. Um, and there's a lot of indiscriminate selling and there are some interesting short-term opportunities. But, you know, going back to the kind of crises that we've seen in the past few decades, um, you know, the Latin American and the Asian crisis, these were kind of localised affairs. Um, we clearly, the big drawdowns for the markets happened um, post-2000 and in 2008. And 2000 was really just about the bursting of a bubble and the knock-on effects of that. And 2008 was, was much more about a crisis in the financial system. So this is very different. And it's worse in many ways, a massive shock um, on consumption and employment. But I think investors are looking at this as a finite problem. So uh, at least for us from from early on, it was pretty clear that it had three stages. There was the escalation stage, the consolidation stage, and then the recovery stage. And we're in the consolidation stage at the moment. The difficulty is how bad is that and how long does it go on for? And as you say, this is quite different from other crises, a much more a fundamental um, shock to the system. How are you changing your investing as a result of um, that aspect of, of, of this? Well, obviously, the next 12 to 24 months are so difficult to decipher at the moment that what we are trying to do is to understand where we've come from and where we might end up in 2022. So we're looking with, uh, you know, the rearview mirror uh, at valuations where we just come from. 
and then looking at the individual stocks um, and saying, could they actually be better off in 2022? And we look through the portfolio, there are a lot of stocks where we think fundamentally their earnings potential could be greater than we thought um, going into this. Uh, so you actually sound quite positive uh, in, in many ways. I would say that's for the, you know, the minority of the market. And to an extent, the market's already started sorting. Um, some things have been sorted uh, too aggressively. Near-term beneficiaries, the uh, makers of cleaning equipment, uh, some of the technology stocks maybe have done too well. But I think in general, we've got to bring our expectations down about base levels of activity because history from previous crises says that it can take a long, long time, a number of years for the overall economy to recover. And Anna, I can see you nodding at that. Um, You're an economist. I wonder how you're reacting to some of the unprecedented things that we're seeing in markets. And we're recording this um, after oil prices dropped below zero for the first time in history. An extraordinary uh, event there. How on earth do you and, and the models that you use to try and understand the world, how are you coping? This is uh, extremely difficult. And as Jeremy just uh, said, it's a very uncertain environment. It's unprecedented. It's uh, truly global. Uh, It's about every country and every sector. So forecasting and thinking about scenarios um, is usually an extremely hard exercise. But uh, when you do it under this extreme uncertainty, um, it's particularly complex. Um, There are many moving parts to this. And so um, what I try to think about is what are the main areas we need to focus on and what the signals that we need to watch are. Um, We can't just uh, take everything, plug it into the model and get uh, a nice output in terms of uh, growth path or inflation path. It's really about watching the moving parts, trying to understand the signals and to continuously revise our outlook as signals evolve and more information becomes available. And as a signal, the utter collapse in in demand uh, and uh, oversupply that um, the oil price overnight um, was showing us, we've never seen anything like that. Do you just have to sort of rip up some of the uh, ways that you you look at the world when you've got prices moving in that sort of of way? This negative pricing is uh, technical in nature. Um, so that's not something I would probably take and start plugging into my models because that, that wouldn't work at all. And you have to assume that uh, you have a drop of price in price, but the price is still uh, positive. So you probably look at a different contract. But what, what it does highlight is how oversupplied uh, the US oil market is and uh, how tight storage is. Um, so even despite the cuts, for example, that we had from OPEC, um, uh, there are the week, uh, the collapse in demand is so unprecedented, so deep, um, that you have um, these uh, wild moves happening in the market. So that just gives me information about uh, the contraction that we're going to see and the recovery path, which I think is also going to be quite slow. I think you're quite right. The next contract, June, is in the 20s. Um, I, I haven't got the figure to hand, but um, it, it was an aberration. But Jeremy, what does it tell you about the world that, um, that we're in, the world that you're um, investing in when you see such fluctuations? Well, I mean, it is a time of crisis. You're going to see major distortions. As you say, I think uh, the forward curve is a better 
better way of looking at things. And we have to judge where the equity stands in relation to longer run expectations. So, you know, you go out a couple of years and the forward curve is kind of implying that oil ought to get back to around $40. And it looks as if oil stocks in the market are discounting that kind of number. So it's going to be a very tough game, I think, in the second half, because the oil producing countries are still uh, in that period committed to reducing production, I think by about 8 million barrels a day. Is that going to be enough? Because if we have a prolonged lockdown, um, you know, you're going to see these distortions go on for longer, you're still going to have too much supply for, for very diminished demand. So it's going to be very, very choppy, I think, in the second half for the oil sector. Okay, well, looking ahead is what this is all about and trying to understand the world that's uh, that's heading our way. So we're, we'll talk in uh, a few minutes about Anna's scenarios. I know you've been working on different scenarios of how you think uh, things might pan out. But first of all, we're going to hear from Ian Sampson, a portfolio manager who oversees Fidelity's leading indicator, the fly, which aggregates a load of economic data and business surveys to give some signal about where economies are heading in the coming weeks. Earlier, he spoke on the phone to our producer to summarise the latest reading. Here's what he had to say. So the Fidel's leading indicator based on March data has unsurprisingly been very bearish indeed. So we're deep in the the bottom left quadrant, as as we call it, which refers to negative and decelerating growth. Uh, No shocks there. And, And to put in some context, it's already halfway to the trough that we saw in the global financial crisis. And that really speaks to how, how tough it is for even economic leading indicators to keep up with the pace of the slowdown that, that we're seeing. Because, of course, the, the reality of that is that we're going to have an economic situation much worse than the financial crisis within the next two weeks. Never mind the, the two months that the fly aims to lead economic activity by. In terms of what's dragging the fly down most this month, most notably it's in the consumer and labour sector. We've all heard about the terrible unemployment claims data coming out of the US with almost as many unemployment claims being filed in the past four weeks as as we've done in in the entirety of the, the global financial crisis. So that's showing up really starkly. Another interesting drag, uh, that's a large drag, but but usually wouldn't be as much of a drag at this stage of the cycle, is service sector surveys. Usually it's the industrial and manufacturing uh, sectors that go hardest and go first as a lead on the rest of the cycle. But because of the nature of coronavirus, that relationship's been somewhat, somewhat reversed. And so actually the things they're holding up better are a bit more industrial in, in nature. So you're seeing international trade, things like Korean exports, uh, while they're clearly not having a great time, uh, are holding up a little bit better. Also, the commodity subsector, while it still is below trend and, and decelerating, it's actually holding up better than you might think. We've all seen the negative price action in oil, but in the broader commodity space, it's not been as disorderly as what you've seen in, in the service sector or in consumer and labour. Ian Sampson there. Now, Jeremy, despite all this negative data that Ian refers to, markets are proving resilient at the moment. Um, does that optimism surprise you? What does it worry you? I am actually quite surprised. I mean, clearly we saw this panic phase and markets fell by around a third over the course of about a month. And then what happened at the end of March? Well, I think there were several technical factors. 
there were a number of um, balanced funds which needed to buy equities to get equity allocations back to, to their normal kind of range. Um, so that provided some technical support. Secondly, most countries went for a fairly strict lock, lockdown and market participants said, well, it effectively it worked in China, therefore it must work elsewhere. And, you know, immediately saw light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I think finally, obviously, there was a lot of shock and awe in terms of government policy, um, and the Fed came out buying bonds, which basically broke this negative spiral that you had with increasing costs of debt finance uh, impacting equity values. So that that helped. So what we did in portfolios was um, we went into the year actually with quite a number of risky positions. So when this started off in, in China, we brought down some of the more risky positions. Um, and then when it became clear it was spreading, we increased cash in the portfolio. At that point, we then went through this exercise of looking at companies and saying which ones were going to be most severely affected, not necessarily in the next, in this year and next, but um, in 2022, and which ones could potentially benefit. At that stage, we added potential beneficiaries. Um, and so that included a number of healthcare stocks, some technology um, and e-commerce related stocks. And now we are kind of consolidating that position because we've come to a point where value has massively underperformed growth. That um, that trend that's been in place accelerated this year. So the next phase for us, I think, is to, to look and we'll take our time, but we're going to look for value stocks from here. This is the rotation that has been heralded um, as long as I've been at Fidelity. So um, we have now perhaps had the, 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 the shock to the, um, to the system, to the processes that might actually um, turn that around, do you think? It's different from 2000, where there was a very clear inflection point. Um, value stocks just got beaten up because the tech side was so fashionable. We're not quite there because I think some of these tech companies can continue to grow through this crisis. But we're getting close. We have to be really careful, though, in the value areas because it contains some industries that are structurally challenged. This is a Darwinian episode for a lot of companies. It's going to sort the strong from the weak. Um, and there's no point in, in, in buying the losers at this point. I was going to ask you about what you think um, of the shape of the recovery, when things are going to return to normal. But actually thinking about it, this Darwinian episode that you're talking about suggests it's not going to be normal in the way that, um, that we would expect it at the moment. Yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure about that, that the world is going to look different at the other side. Um, the strong will get stronger and you're going to have a very different interplay between private sector companies and governments. Uh, and that still is very obscure. Okay, well, we might get a little bit of uh, time to explore that later. But um, Anna, I'd like to come to you now, because Jeremy is observing the, uh, the, the, the dramatic changes that are happening at a company level. Um, you are looking at the economy at a global level. What is your base case? Um, where do you think that we're going to be in, uh, let's say, a year's time? 
Well, um, I said uh, thinking about uh, scenarios for the next few quarters and even years is very complex um, because there are many factors that we need to take into account. So um, uh, it depends on the virus trajectory, on uh, lockdown exit strategies, um, policy interventions and uh, also associated uh, multipliers. Uh, corporate and consumer behavior, various second-order effects, uh, various tail risks. So it's really hard to um, come up um, with something that you have really a high high degree of confidence in. But uh, let me talk about the base case. And we assign about 60% probability to this case uh, that global growth is going to come in at around minus 1.8 to 2% this year. Um, and that assumes that we do s- start seeing the lifting of the restrictions globally from May onwards. But crucially, the secondary wave of infection that we are very likely to see uh, is going to be uh, less severe, but it won't be able to, to be controlled effectively through um, widely available testing, uh, tracing, targeted quarantines. This would be an ideal scenario, but we assume that this is not going to happen. So this leads to requirement for continued social distancing uh, through 2020. That's your base case. Um, so a better than evens uh, chances that, um, that that will happen. But you do uh, give a really quite significant uh, probability to the downside of things not going as well as this. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, 30% probability of a downside case. Um, and this is where we have reopening of the economies, but the subsequent waves are so severe that we need to have uh, full lockdowns again. And that happens perhaps in an uh, asynchronized way across different economies. And uh, then containment policies are not effective and uh, the policy interventions that we've had so far or even perhaps more um, that we are going to have um, are also not effective uh, in preventing this, this sharp collapse. And actually recession is likely to last through the whole year and is likely to be very deep. Now, this is the downside case. As I said, in, in the base case, we still assume that there is a recession uh, and the recovery is more, as people say, for U-shape uh, than a V-shape. Uh, so it's still quite uh, uh, a dramatic picture in the base case scenario, but the downside case is really bad. And uh, the parallels would probably uh, be in line with the Great Depression. Um, OK, I was going to ask you about the upside, but you only attribute a, a 10% chance of that, I know. So um, uh, we'll, we'll maybe gloss over that. But I want to talk about government action. Jeremy talked about this um, a moment or two ago. And how confident are you in the effectiveness? So we've had the headlines, which um, were so impressive, the shock and awe, Jeremy, that, that you mentioned. Uh, but Anna, um, there are questions about whether this, that the money, the loans, whether it's reaching the right people and the right companies at the right time. Yeah, and it's something that we still have to see, but you're absolutely right. The headlines uh, were uh, impressive. And actually, the pace of um, uh, the introduction of those new policies was also uh, very impressive and unprecedented. Um, And on the monetary policy side, I would say uh, we know that for now it's working. 
Uh, central banks tried to fix liquidity issues, particularly the shortage of um, uh, dollars in the global system. Um, and look, if you if you look at a number of different stress indicators, they are in the normal territory now. The financial conditions uh, have eased. There is no shortage of dollar liquidity. Uh, so you could say that uh, at least temporarily, um, monetary policy is working um, and the, the big tail risks that would, could potentially lead to really big financial crisis, uh, those tail risks have been reduced. But this is something that, that keeps um, markets from collapsing. Now, in terms of the economy, it's all about uh, fiscal policy. And again, great headlines, um, $2 trillion uh, in the US, uh, overall globally about $8 trillion uh, uh, from uh, all the countries uh, are being uh, pumped into the system. You have to be very careful and to distinguish firstly um, what is actually uh, real uh, discretionary fiscal easing, so money actually going to households, uh, actually going to companies, and what is loan guarantees. Because because loan guarantees you know, are not an actual uh, fiscal easing of, of fiscal, fiscal stimulus going into the economy. Um, and then, uh, importantly, it's about implementation. And you said, uh, yeah, is money going uh, to the places that it needs to go? Um, and is it timely? And we still have to see. But certainly, we do already have the evidence um, in the US and in the UK, especially, that those loan programs going to uh, small businesses uh, or even um, uh, money going to individuals, there has been a lot of friction and a lot of teething problems. So, so not, 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 all there, not all there yet. I suppose the concern for some companies, Jeremy, is if the bailouts do happen, if the money comes from, from governments, uh, we've got this phrase in the UK, the king's shilling, um, you can take money from the government, but it comes with obligations. That, that, that's from a, a long time ago. But um, what's the, what are the implications of taking the king's shilling nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I don't think we should be looking for free lunches here. The way I prefer to try and think about this is, is yes, you know, there will be conditions attached. Um, the government is going to try and make sure that banks are an effective conduit for the financing, um, but don't um, have a, a benefit in terms of profit terms. So no free lunch. I think it's the next stage, in a way, that is most important. And Anna talks about making sure that the system remains liquid. And it's really what happens at the end of the lockdown period. Is government going to then try and stimulate the economies and how they're going to do that? Um, and so there are some things that we need to think about there. I mean, when we look at China now, uh, you know, activity still below where it was before. Traffic's up to maybe 90% of previous levels. But in March, we saw excavator sales up 11% year on year. So the infrastructure program's getting into gear there. Something else to think about for Western economies, maybe autos. This is a sector where in the past we've seen stimulus to try and get us out of, uh, out of recession. Um, what would that involve? Um, and I, I think in, in this area, you know, perhaps further incentives to adopt um, electric vehicles. Um, and so we've, we're thinking about how, how we can play that in portfolios as well. Are we are we now into a um, a period when uh, governments rethink how they engage with industries and with individual companies, where choosing national champions um, is acceptable and and indeed desirable? 
you know, that's clearly something that we need to think about. I mean, you only need to listen to the radio every day here to understand that global supply chains in these kind of circumstances don't always work. So I see that as being concentrated primarily in the healthcare system at first. And, uh, you know, this is one area where we're looking um, to try and understand how government policy can improve the domestic situation for healthcare um, systems. But I think, I think it, it does play to, to other industries as well. It seems too soon to be talking about um, exit strategies, Anna. But on the other hand, um, we, we need to be knowing that there is a way out of this. But there's, of course, no uniform approach uh, between different countries. So um, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, I don't think it's too soon. As you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about uh, how to exit. Uh, ultimately, it, it might be, um, it seems to be like a trade-off between economic costs uh, and uh, health costs and uh, lives. But actually, I don't think it's almost as simple as that in the sense that if we do, as I said, if, if we do open up very quickly, we might see uh, subsequent waves, which can be severe, then we'll have to go back into lockdowns. So actually, uh, opening up too quickly might, might mean that the economic cost actually might be much bigger uh, then if you stay um, if you stay in a lockdown and open uh, on, only very slowly and start with certain sectors um, with um, with schools uh, sh- small shops etc etc uh, but I think uh, there is my base case and I think it's very likely that we will have this requirement for social distancing now for a long time through the whole year or perhaps until a vaccine is found and made widely available so we are looking at the next 12 to 18 months uh, of social distancing. And another question that's very important, and I mentioned it um, in in my moving parts uh, remark, is that we don't know um, how consumers are going to behave. Uh, Some of it is social, and a lot of people say, well, you can leave the lockdown, but actually people are not going to go out shopping and and they're not going back to the office. Well, I'm not going, at least, uh, because I have a really nice setup at home. Um, But... um, I think all this, uh, one thing is to have a government policy um, and a plan. Another thing also is to try and understand what what the social uh, impact uh, and social behaviour is going to be. And that's very, very difficult. How on earth, Jeremy, do you value companies um, when all the numbers that you might be using are are haywire, really? Well, rearview mirror in this case is quite useful. We we can look at the historic numbers and then what what we find our analysts are doing is downplaying the importance of 2020 and 2021 and looking at the earnings prospects for 2022 and i think that's really the best best way of of doing things so when you do that the rearview mirror would tell you that um, valuations based on an earnings base for uh, for, for markets are generally quite high compared compared to previous incidents where you've seen declining in earn, decline in earnings so about 18 times trailing earnings for the US is pretty high um, and it's around 14 times for the rest of the world but on the other hand I think this is actually a relatively attractive level compared to bonds because uh, it is almost inevitable that we are now facing many, many years of extremely low interest rates and extremely low bond yields. And in these situations, equities do provide, I think, the best real alternative 
um, and as such, that equity risk premium looks pretty attractive. Anna, do, do you agree about uh, you know uh, low low rates stretching out uh, into the future? Because um, there is a chance that inflation could come back. You've got companies that are sorry. You've got countries pumping money into the system. Could that? Uh, stimulate in, in inflation ultimately? Yeah, I think this is um, a very interesting question that um, uh, we were trying to really um, understand. I think near term, it's almost certain that we're going to see a very low inflation, no even deflation as we're going through this recession period and recovery. But um, a year or so from here, we we might see um, high inflation as, as demand picks up uh, and as perhaps we see some reshaping of supply chains, which might mean higher inflation. I'm not, however, uh, yet sure that um, this unprecedented government uh, stimulus will result in inflation. And I think, uh, I know there's a lot of talk about it, and yes, it's very easy monetary policy, very easy fiscal policy, but I think it ultimately depends uh, on whether it's temporary or permanent. So, as we come out, and I think it's going to be very difficult uh, for the central banks and the government to exit from this stimulus. But my current assumption is that this kind of stimulus or helicopter money or MMT is not going to be a permanent feature of policy, at least in the near term as we come out of this. Now, that means that high inflation is, is actually unlikely. Uh, at least coming from policy. If you have uh, some changes on the demand side or some changes on the supply side, I I mentioned the supply chains uh, effect, that might bring about inflation. But inflation coming uh, just from this uh, big policy stimulus, I don't think it's it's something that's clear-cut and we really need to see what happens. Okay, so if inflation, you're, you're not so worried about it um, at, at the moment. And therefore, if, Jeremy, we, we're, we're right that um, uh, you know, rates will stay at rock bottom levels for even longer, does that mean you're relaxed about the debt that is being um, piled on as well as, as a means of um, helping companies back onto their feet? Well, that debt, I guess, is, is ring-fenced and some companies will draw that down more than others. We've just seen the first phase of companies drawing down lines of credit um, and, you know, in the first instance, just putting that money back on deposit. I think it's going to be much more of an issue for small and medium-sized businesses, the, the debt load. I think in terms of behaviour coming out of this, I think actually it's interesting to see what has happened in Japan, where waves of recession have led consumers and companies to become more and more um, prudent with their financing. So I think we're going into a period where companies will, um, will, will, will effectively hoard cash and individuals will as well. So I think, I think that's an interesting phase to think about for the next, for the recovery phase. Well, you mentioned Darwinian uh, forces. So survival seems to be the, uh, the name of the, uh, the game here. And yes, cash being king. Right. Well, now it's the moment you've all been waiting for, our Rich Pickings parlour game. It's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Jeremy, you first. On the positive side, uh, whilst the consumer is is really challenged at this point, I'd focus on dollar stores uh, as a, a subsector of retail within within the US. Some very 
interesting opportunities there and these traditionally really benefit when unemployment rises so that's on the positive side on the negative side i'd be very cautious about traditional media companies some are having success in new streaming services but i don't think that's going to be anywhere near enough to counteract the problems of fewer sports to view on television advertisers pulling back spending and these kind of activities and um, Anna, what about you? Your hotcakes? So I, uh, I like gold. I think um, clearly this is a safe haven uh, in, uh, in a crisis environment. But also, uh, as we just discussed, as we come out of this, and if we do see um, central banks uh, trying to introduce a lot of inflation in the economy, if that ultimately leads to um, debasing of um, the fiat money, I think gold is actually one, or oh, the only, perhaps, uh, um, commodity, uh, the only asset that can do well. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hot on coffee, actually. That's uh, a commodity that's keeping me going. But, um, but anyway, enough about me. Back to you, Anna. What's your hot potato? Stock up on coffee, yeah, for, for the lockdown. Um, and in terms of uh, hot potato... I'm really worried about um, emerging markets, and I didn't mention it uh, in our discussion, but I do think most of them are really vulnerable given the uh, weakness of the health systems and the collapse in demand, the collapse in supply, this this uh, a double or triple whammy. And so I think the countries that are particularly vulnerable in this environment uh, are Mexico, South Africa. Uh, so um, I would I would sell the equities. Okay, I think you've given us two uh, ideas there for episodes in their own right, debasing of fiat money and uh, (laughs) the trouble in in, uh, emerging markets. But sadly, that is all we have time for now. Um, I hope that's given you listening an insight into how the investment teams are approaching the weeks and months to come. If you'd like more of our latest thinking on the pandemic, you can find it on our website, fidelityinstitutional.com. There's plenty more to listen to as well on our Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast channel, including the weekly updates from our Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey. Just search for the those titles on your podcast app. Thank you today, though, very much um, to my guests, Anna Stubnitska, Jeremy Podger and Ian Sampson. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark, with production support from Alex Wilcox and Maddie Fletcher. From all of us, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.